The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. And he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you? Just fine, Father. Great Good to be here. You. Yes, you too. Those. Yep. Father, any uh, prayer requests you'd like to uh, request tonight? Oh, yes. Yes, as always, Tom. Um, I've asked prayers for Dr. David Hofrichter for her recovery, and of course for Mr. Paul Riley, Dr. Paul and his soul family, and uh, also uh, many other dear souls uh, known to us who need those prayers. Again, the list could be quasi-infinite, um, but if you just ask for prayers who, for those I've committed to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, Our Lady doesn't forget, ever. So, so she will remember them all, but she's, uh, I ask you to please uh, remember generally uh, prayers for those good souls. Uh, pray for the children, uh, especially the children in our country. They're being targeted, as you know, for corruption. So we have to pray for the little ones, that God will protect their innocence. And we have to pray for our country. Our country is a nation. We have to pray for our people, uh, because our entire people are being targeted for destruction, as you know. So... Uh, please, uh, please keep all in your prayers. Um, the, uh, you know, pray for our mothers and fathers who are trying to be, uh, you know, good Catholic gentlemen, fathers, good Catholic ladies, mothers, and raising their children. Um, so, as I say, you know, their request, request list could be infinite, uh, or quasi-infinite, but, uh, it doesn't have to be because the infinite mind of God knows them, knows very well uh, the intentions that are near and dear to us. So um, we, we commend them all to his loving care. We, as I say, place them in the sacred heart of Jesus and in the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And uh, they will be well, well kept and well provided for. So. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you, Father. Uh, several items on the docket for tonight. Uh, first, we um, wanted to ask, Father, your uh, thoughts, the traditional Catholic perspective on the Book of Enoch. Um, it's a uh, question that's come up um, several times, um, even even recently, but uh, this has always been a, uh, a recurring question, I think. Um, this Book book of Enoch, um, just wondering what, what Catholics should believe about this. It's obviously not in our, um, in our current sacred scriptures that we have in the Bible, but um, there does exist, apparently, this book of Enoch that was supposedly written by the, the patriarch Enoch. And um, there's just a lot of, I think, questions in general surrounding this, whether it is legitimate or not, um, whether Catholics should believe some of it or any of it. Um, there's some very interesting, fascinating uh, stories that are that are told in this book of Enoch. So um, what what is a traditional Catholic to think of this, Father? Well, there's a real... Uh, resurgence and in interest in what we know as the apocryphal literature, that is, the books that the church itself did not 
pronounce as being inspired by God, yet ancient, ancient books that uh, purport to be somehow divine revelation or prophetic books. Right? And the book of Henoch is one of those. It is probably the most ancient of them all. Uh, we, we know there's a resurgence of interest in these things because the Gospels themselves are being called into question. Uh, the sacred scriptures, as we know them, as the church that Christ established has de decided them, the canon of sacred scripture is, is under attack right now. And one of those attacks is coming from this direction. That they're trying to say, well, look, there's this whole realm of literature that was suppressed by the church that uh, is every bit as authoritative uh, as anything we find in the Bible itself. The church is trying to, uh, trying to uh, let's say, mainstream Christianity, I guess they would call it. But in this case, the, the Catholic Church traditionally suppressed these ancient books because the church found these books threatening, uh, found the information the truths in these books threatening to the church, and so the church had to suppress them. And uh, this is the big lie. It's, it's one of many big lies being told these days. But, uh, you know, during in the early days of the church, when the Gospels of St. Matthew and St. Mark and St. Luke and St. John were being preached by the apostles and um, and those whom they... Uh, in themselves, baptized, ordained, commissioned. Um, when when this was going on, the Gnostics uh, were hell-bent on twisting Christianity to serve their purpose. And so they produced these Gnostic Gospels, Gospel of St. Mary Magdalene, Gospel of St. Peter, Gospel of St. Thomas. These things appeared, and uh, they're all um, either ranging from quaint in their stories to just downright heretical. But the message was always to be cor corrupting the faith to make it basically follow the Gnostic way of thinking. And so the, uh, the interest in the book of Henoch today uh, is an example of that same kind of mentality of trying to corrupt the true sacred scriptures as we know them, as the church has given them, as the church has received them. Um, now, the, the book of Hinnok is, uh, is ancient. It's probably, it might be one of the, if not the most ancient of these, of these books. Uh, in fact, its origins kind of lost to history. And uh, it's very large. It's a very big collection of, uh, many would say, documents, just various documents authored by various writers at various times. Uh, the, these voluminous writings, which, you know, taken all together would far out outweigh any of the existing scriptures uh, in the Bible that we know, uh, that we have, these writings range from descriptions of the celestial uh, world uh, and uh, the, the, the world around us, even the physical world, uh, to prophecies, um, to uh, a description of the fall, uh, of the angels' fall, and um, also uh, the idea of a coming Redeemer. Uh, the idea of a coming Redeemer uh, did appeal to the fathers of the Church, 
they might not have been entirely familiar with the entirety, entirety of the book of Henoch. But part of the book that spoke about a coming redeemer resonated with the fathers of the church. And, uh, you know, that would, they would tend to think that this would be a divine message and would speak well for the book of Henoch. But as it turns out, the entire book taken, uh, taken as a whole was rejected by the church. And um, in fact, it's not considered canonical, that is really divinely inspired, uh, even, by, even by the Jews today. Uh, they do not consider the book of Henoch to be actually part of their canon uh, of Old Testament scriptures. Uh, certainly, the Catholic Church uh, never took the Book of Henoch uh, officially as a divinely inspired writing. And uh, it largely disappeared by some, sometime in the 4th century from being referenced. Although there were isolated references that followed, but they were very rare. Um, and um, it's interesting, uh, our resident... Uh, scholar on Cornelius Lapide uh, uh, actually looked into this question of the book of Henoch. By the way, I should mention this. Uh, Henoch is a biblical figure. Uh, we know from the book of Genesis that Henoch was of the seventh generation after, uh, after Adam and Eve. He was um, the son of Jared, the father of Methuselah, and they, I think the great-grandfather of Noah, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, there's even thought by some writers that there was an ancient book of Noah that was somewhat, if not largely, incorporated into this book of Henoch, which was a com compilation from multiple sources. But I asked our uh, dear Cornelius to uh, translate the section uh, that Cornelius Alapide, the great um, commentator on the scriptures, uh, had written about this, this book of Henoch. And uh, so I'd like to read it to you. Actually, it's interesting uh, what Cornelius had to say about it, Cornelius Alapide. And he's, he's uh, actually taking his commentary uh, from a statement made in the Epistle of St. Jude, chapter 5, verse 14 which is one of the uh, honest, divinely inspired writings of the New Testament, of course, the Epistle of St. Jude. And so he starts out by quoting verse 14 of chapter 5. Now of these, Henoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with thousands of his saints. That's very topical for you and me right now, because we had a question about the idea of, uh, a, of a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth with his saints before the resurrection. And again, this is one of the scriptures, passages that they refer to. We just addressed that question last week. But then Cornelius goes on and says, He shows that an eternal storm of darkness is reserved for impious heretics from the testimony of Henoch, who was the seventh from Adam. For Adam begot Seth, who begot Enos, who begot Kainan, who begot Malaleel, who begot Jared, who begot Henoch. This is a very ancient prophecy, seeing as it was made before the flood, for Henoch was the great-great-grandfather of Noah, 
For he begat Methuselah, who begat Lamech, who begat Noah, as we read in Genesis chapter 5. And so uh, then uh, Cornelius continues, and this is a translation, as I say, of our Latinist. Moreover, Enoch was a prophet, and the things which Jude here cites, he prophesied orally, and Jude received them either by the tradition of his fathers or from a book written by Enoch or Noah or by someone else who gathered together the prophecies of Enoch. Hence Tertullian, one of the ancient fathers of the church, on the apparel of women, chapter 3, is of the opinion that this book was saved from the flood in the ark, or that Noah restored it from memory at the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. In agreement with this opinion are St. Jerome, on the ecclesiastical writers, Didymus, and St. Bede the Venerable, on this passage, St. Athanasius, and St. Clement of Alexandria. Hence, it is probable that this book once existed unsullied and unadulterated, but later either disappeared, as did the book of Otto the Seer, which is referred to also in a true book of the Bible, Second Paralipomenon, chapter 9, verse 29, and many others who are cited in the book of Kings, or was corrupted and distorted by heretics, as were the other prophecies of the ancients generally. Now that statement by Cornelius Elopid is very important. <clears throat> he interrupts the statement by giving various sources, but we should read that statement all the way through. <clears throat> that Tertullian is of the opinion that this book was saved from the flood in the ark, or that Noah restored it from memory at the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. In agreement with this opinion, are the following, and he gives that, and then he says, hence it is probable that this book once existed, unsullied and unadulterated, but later either disappeared, as did the book of Otto, and many others who are cited in the book of Kings, or was corrupted and distorted by heretics, as were the other prophecies of the ancients generally. That statement of uh, Cornelius Elapide uh, would indicate that there was a thought that the book originally existed, that it was legitimate, and that it, it had been corrupted in the course of time, which would explain why the church did not accept it, and why there are things in the book that are a matter rather of, of lore and fable rather than divine revelation. Anyway, he continues here, For the book of Henoch, which is cited by Tertullian, Irenaeus, and the others cited above, is teeming with errors, as when it asserts that the sons of God, in Genesis chapter 6, were angels who begot the giants by the daughters of men through the hot tears flowing from the eyes of angels, which St. Augustine rightly calls a fable. St. Augustine refers to this in his City of God, chapter 18, verse 38. He refers to that statement from uh, the book of Enoch. Um, now, the gentleman who translated this said, he can't help but think that the expression, the hot tears, calidas uh, lacrimas profluentes, I think he said it is in the Latin, is some kind of an idiomatic expression. But actually, it does say that in Cornelius Elapide, literally, uh, that um, the sons of God were, were angels who begot the giants by the daughters 
of men through the hot tears flowing from the eyes of angels. Very strange expression, needless to say, which St. Augustine rightly calls a fable. Such also is that which Tertullian quotes from the book of Enoch, namely, that the angels who taught women to ornament and paint themselves to weave garments out of gold and silver, to dye fleeces, etc., were damned, the expression, the, the implication being that the angels who taught women to do these things were condemned for having taught them to do these things. Again, we're not dealing with things that are of divine revelation, but a fable here, but are in the book of Enoch, as it exists now. The same author, and we're talking about Tertullian here, on idolatry, says that Enoch predicted that the devils would use all the elements and all things which are on the earth and in the sea for idolatry. The book of Enoch is frequently cited in the testimony of the twelve patriarchs quoted and praised by Origen and Procopius. It is cited, I say, in the testimony of Simeon, Levi, Issachar, and Dan, where the prophecies of Enoch are related concerning the events which would befall the sons and ancestors of the twelve patriarchs concerning the scandals and punishments of the Hebrews, of the Jews' murder of the Redeemer of the world, of the ruin, slavery, and eternal reprobation of the Hebrews. St. Irenaeus says that Enoch was serving as God's messenger to the angels, that is, to the sons of God, when he castigated their lust for the daughters of Cain. As Fervendentius rightly interprets him to mean. Moreover, St. Jerome, on his ecclesiastical writers, and St. Augustine, in his City of God, say that they do not have sure faith in the things which are written in the book of Enoch, because its great antiquity has made them suspect of its being spurious or distorted. Now, when Cornelius says here that they do not have that complete confidence in the contents of the book of Enoch, and it says, St. Augustine says, because of the, the ancientness of it, and we don't know how much of that has been distorted or falsified, he's giving the lie to those who these days claim that St. Augustine and St. Jerome basically uncritically accepted the book of Enoch. And they did not, clearly. So that is not, that is, is not correct to say that the early fathers simply accepted the book of Enoch as though it was divinely revealed. Certainly not in its current state, or the state that came to them. And this, uh, this translation gives another paragraph, and then that ends. Whatever the case may be, it is certain that those things which Jude cites were prophesied by Enoch. Therefore, Cajetan and others wrongly hold this epistle in suspicion because he cites the apocryphal book of Enoch. For he does not cite a book, but the prophecy of Enoch which could have been either spoken or written. And if it was written by Hinoch or Noe, it was authentically written, even though it was spoiled in later ages by the addition of fables. Therefore, if Judas cites the book, if, Saint, if Jude, the apostle, cites the book of Hinoch already, in its deformed and therefore apocryphal state, he is not for that reasoning, reason demonstrating all things which are contained in the book, but only that the party cites and is an authentic and genuine part written by Hinoch or Noah, namely the prophecy of Hinoch on the last judgment. 
So, in other words, if I can uh, simply, you know, summarize what he's saying there, um, he's saying that St. Jude is not saying that the Book of Enoch, as it then existed, was an entirely divinely revealed book. Mm -hmm. All he was saying was that that statement that St. Jude took and quoted in his epistle was considered to be an authentic statement of the prophet and the patriarch Enoch. That's all that he's saying. So he's saying this is not an endorsement of the book of Enoch. And those who try to make it sound as though, uh, the book of Enoch is actually a divinely revealed book and it belongs in the canon of sacred scripture. And uh, the truths revealed therein are anything but, in many cases, just, just strange fables. Um, he, he says that that is not true. But the church never accepted it nor did the fathers of the church embrace the entire book as though it was, it was in, it, in that state, really a divinely revealed book. Mm -hmm. I mean, the ideas of the children of, of men in the book of Henech, the children of uh, the, the sons of God being engendered by the angels, the hot tears of the angels and so on, clearly that, that has no place in divinely revealed literature. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Why is this an issue even? Why is it a question? Well, because you know, St. Saint, Saint Jude, and others also. I mean, there are other references to uh, Enoch in, uh, in the books of the Bible. In the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastic, Ecclesiasticus, or, or Sirach, as they call it, refers to Enoch. The first that Enoch was taken by God, and uh, we know that is true. Enoch is one who uh, actually, like Elias, was taken up alive by God. This is before Elias, long before Elias. In the book of Genesis, chapter 5, verse 22, it says, Henoch walked with God and lived after he begot Methuselah 300 years and begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Henoch were 365 years. But it says that God took Henoch alive. And uh, the tradition of the commentators seems to be that both Henoch, who is taken by God for his virtue, and uh, Elias, the prophet, who later was taken by God in the fiery chariot, will come as the two great witnesses at the end of the world to confront the Antichrist. So um, there is a lot of uh, uh, to be said about, about Henoch and his role yet to be played here. And yet they're trying to play him, in a sense, in a role which is against faith right now, to try to enlist him as some kind of a witness against the faith that we know that we have. And Henoch uh, will not stand for that, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. But in any case, uh, this, this is how they're trying to use the confusion generated uh, by their misinterpretation to uh, attack the faith as it is now. Mm -hmm. Father, could, could Enoch, uh, upon his return, um, make any kind of statement or pronouncement on this, this book of Enoch? <clears throat> well, no doubt. Out the errors and Tom, no doubt if the error uh, persists and grows and becomes uh, a real problem, mm -hmm. a stumbling block of faith, no doubt Enoch will have a bit to say about that <laughs> and will uh, we'll expose it for the, for the falsehood it is. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, uh, the fact that the, the book, if, if he actually did read, uh, write a book, and evidently he did, yeah. and evidently Noah also, uh, 
did did right, but again, the problem is people get in and they start adding and interpolating into the book their own ideas, and by the time it it arrives, uh, you know, as it did as as the books of the real Bible came to the church in the in the 300s, the book of Henoch had been so corrupted it was almost impossible to sort out which was original and which was a uh, fabulous edition by some uh, somebody with an overactive imagination. You know? mm -hmm. So, uh, by the by the way, um, you know, some years ago there was a movie called Noah, I think, and who starred in that? Uh, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe starred. Was he Noah? Is that it? I think so. Yeah, okay, I didn't see the movie, but I was I was told about it and read some reviews of it, and it's it's pretty clear that the account of Noah given in that movie <clears throat> with its giants and its very strange imagery yeah. was taken not from sacred scripture the bible but was taken from the book of Henoch yeah. or maybe some vestiges of a book of Noah that were kind of incorporated into, into a, the book of Henoch with a lot of other um, fables right so, you know, I'd, I'd be interested in knowing uh, if any of our viewers saw that movie, Noah, and what they thought of it. People, people I know who saw it came away very puzzled, saying, gee, I didn't think that was in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. And they went back and looked, and they found it wasn't in the Bible at all. Yeah. Nowhere to be found in the book of Genesis, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Father, the, the church obviously makes pronouncements on, on these books, saying that, um, you know, certain books were not, uh, were not to be contained in, in sacred scripture, were not divinely inspired, but... Um, is that um, are they explicitly rejecting those those books by saying that, or are they simply saying that um, you know maybe some parts of these were not d divinely inspired? But or does the church ever actually just explicitly condemn any of these apocryphal books? Uh, well, I don't know that in making the statement of what constituted the actual Bible, the canonical books, the divinely inspired books of the Bible, I don't recall that the church listed books that had to be explicitly rejected mm -hmm. that previously have had been thought in certain quarters to be inspired. I have to go back and look at it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I don't recall them saying these are the canonical books truly, definitely inspired by God. And here's a list of books that are not. Yeah. I don't recall them saying that. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I think the point was, um, just to, to say, these books are inspired by God, and any other books that you know might come your way, do not trust them yeah. as being inspired by God. They're the works of man, which means doesn't mean that they're full of it. Uh, they're all errors, but it just means that they're not the complete truth, okay. divinely inspired truth. Okay, well, that's a very interesting uh, discussion. Thank you, Father. By the way, the church, you know, in pronouncing upon private revelations actually holds a, something of a similar standard uh, in that, um, well, no, no Catholic is bound to believe the, the you know, private the message of a tri private revelation. Um, but the Church will say that there is nothing that is contained uh, in the message of this particular private revelation that is contrary to the faith. So the church will not say that, yes, this is divinely revealed. The church will say at most that this harmonizes with what we know by divine revelation 
and is worthy of belief. That's all. All right. But to say it is, it, you know, as a matter of fact, it is, it is divinely revealed. The church does not do that with any private revelation. But the church will only say that, that this is in harmony. There's nothing contrary to the Catholic faith or divine revelation in this message. Um, uh, but, um, uh, and, and it is worthy of belief. Um, but the church um, does not endorse it as divine revelation. If there were anything contained in the message that was contrary to Catholic belief, the church would not say that. And so with these apocryphal books of, of, that, that aspire to be or, or pretended to be books of divine revelation, uh, the church, would, if it found error, it would immediately discount them. So it would be with private revelation today. If it found error in there, it would immediately discount them as being not of God. Okay. Very interesting. Uh, well, Father, another topic um, tonight was a, uh, a recent film that, uh, that was put out uh, titled Nefarious. Um, oh, yes. I guess a, um, she would call it a, a Christian-produced film, um, ne Nefarious. And uh, I know some, some of our viewers have asked about this, Father, what, uh, what your thoughts were on this movie, if you would recommend uh, traditional Catholics go and see this movie. I know you've heard from, uh, from various persons who said they, they have seen this movie, uh, maybe some who are even um, very concerned about what they've, uh, very affected by what they've seen in the movie. So, um, and I believe you actually saw the movie yourself, Father. So what, what did you think of the movie? Would you recommend uh, traditional Catholics view this movie, Nefarious? Well, I'm not a movie-goer uh, as such. I mean, I, I, I'll see a movie if I think I need to. Um... And uh, I saw The Passion of the Christ, that I thought I needed to, uh, because Catholics were asking about it. And so it is with this movie, Nefarious, I had people asking about it. Some traditional Catholics went to see it. Some thought it was very good. Others thought it was very disturbing. But uh, also, I do a lot of air travel, as you know, to get to the missions. And I was having uh, flight attendants asking me about the movie, people on the airplanes asking about the movie in the airports. and. And um, it was clear to me that this movie was making the rounds. And also, uh, on some of the conservative websites, it was being touted as a must-see movie for, by conservatives. So, I finally succumbed to... Uh, actually, it was an, a, a flight uh, when uh, the, the flight attendants, uh, one gentleman and one lady, as I boarded the plane, um, I said, oh, did you see the movie Nefarious? And they both were urging me to see the movie because they thought it was really, uh, uh, use an old expression, the cat's whiskers, you know, that was really good. So I thought, well, okay, uh, if I get the chance, I'll, I'll see it. So on that trip, I asked one fine Catholic gentleman I knew if he had seen it. No, he hadn't seen it. I don't think know if he'd even heard about it. But um, as it turns out, he was interested, so he did see it, and uh, before I got back to that particular chapel, he had seen it twice, and he'd rented it so that I could, he could see it again with me, and so I did get a chance to see it, uh, in fact, uh, just a lot few days ago. And um, of this, uh, by the way, let, let me just uh, give a little background on the movie. Uh, nefarious is what the word implies, okay, something nefarious, 
the, the Latin word nefarious comes from nefas, okay? And fas has to do with it, like the divine law, basically. And so nefarious is someone who absolutely rejects the divine law. That's what makes somebody nefarious. Uh, early in the movie, uh, the possessing demon even uses the expression nefariamus. Well, there is no, re no Latin word nefariamus, but it does indicate a first-person plural uh, verb ending, which indicates that nefarious uh, involves demonic activity, which, which includes the, the presence of multiple demons, okay, because it's plural. So that's a little hint given at the beginning of the movie. Um, they were talking about multiple demons. This is perfectly in accord with what you know from sacred scripture, because when our Lord told the demon to give his name, the demon, the possessing demon said, uh, my name is Legion, for we are many, he said. So that, that is, and our Lord talks in another place about uh, the one devil going out, takes seven demons worse than himself and goes and, and uh, possesses this poor man. So the fact that there are multiple demons possessing, that's perfectly in accord with what we know about possession. But this movie came out in, in this year, actually, 2023. And uh, so it's, it's very, uh, <coughs> very recent. Had a relatively brief run, probably very limited theaters. Screens showed it. And I think for pretty obvious reasons. The message of the movie is what really um, inspires conservatives. Um, and also draws the absolute wrath of the left. Um, you can see a movie like this really uh, facing some very stiff headwinds about getting in theaters where people can see it, just as the, the Passion of the Christ did. If it hadn't been for the name Mel Gibson, it, it might not have gone anywhere. Um, so you can see why this was shown in only very, uh, relatively limited theaters. People got a chance uh, relatively... Relatively few people got a chance to see it. It wasn't a blockbuster by any means, uh, because the critics, the critics attacked it, uh, just just absolutely, uh, you know, ruthlessly attacked this movie. Uh, and yet, the people who saw the movie loved it. Um, what what about the movie itself? Well, I'll explain the plot in just a second. But I would say it's important to note. I don't think there's anything in this movie that is educational for those who've been doing their homework as Catholics. I think any Catholic is going to know virtually anything that is true in the movie. So I don't think the movie is educational from that point of view for a Catholic person who um, who has some some basic knowledge of possession. Uh, there may be many Catholics who don't, though. So there may be things that are surprising to them in the movie. But I, I will tell you that there was nothing in the movie that I found educational. Nothing that revealed anything to me that I didn't already know. Um, but also, um, I would say there was nothing in the movie that was, what should I say, uh, distressing or disturbing uh, for me either. Uh, it was listed as a horror movie, uh, which really doesn't do justice to it. 
Um, but um, because there was nothing surprising in it, everything that happened uh, happened as, as one would kind of expect that it would play out. Now, I'm saying that, that, uh, you know, I wasn't surprised by anything that happened in the movie in the, in, in the sense that there was anything educational. Um, there, there are still uh, even Catholic people who would see the movie and be very disturbed by it. And I know a number of people who are very distressed by it. Um, there's an execution scene toward the end of the movie where someone is actually uh, put in the electric chair. And that is very graphic, and uh, I can see that that would be a horrific uh, scene for someone to witness. Um, but the probably the most horrific part of the movie for most people would be the demon speaking through the lead actor. And I think the lead actor here, a man named, uh, let's see, his name is Sean Patrick Flannery. Uh, I think he did a spectacular job of portraying this convict who was <clears throat> in maximum security prison for multiple murders. He was a serial killer. Uh, <clears throat> he's condemned to die, and he had been he'd chosen to die by the electric chair. Didn't have to die that way. There are other ways to die. Lethal injection. But chose to die by the electric chair, which is strange that someone would make a choice like that. But what comes to light is the man is, they think, feigning insanity by pretending to be possessed by a demon. And uh, there are those who, like the jailer, the warden, uh, who is convinced that the man is faking this for the sake of getting a psychiatrist to rule him legally insane so that he will be spared the death penalty. So because if he's legally insane, they would consider him not responsible for the evil that he did. Not entirely responsible, anyway. So he'd go to a psychiatric ward and be kept there rather than be put to death. Um, so, you know, I don't want to give the movie away for anybody who wants to see it, but it turns out there's a young psychiatrist who was out, actually called in <clears throat> just hours before this man is to be put to death. Why just hours before? Well, that's part of the movie. Explain. And the young psychiatrist is an atheist, and he's trying to interview this uh, this murderer uh, facing imminent electrocution uh, to determine whether or not he's faking insanity or whether he is in fact insane. But one possibility that the psychiatrist does not allow is that he's actually possessed. Psychiatrist is an atheist doesn't believe in such things. And um, the irony of it all is, um, you know, the, the character of the, the murderer is making this serious effort to convince the psychiatrist that he is possessed by a demon. In fact, it's the demon who is speaking to him, the psychiatrist, who doesn't believe in demons, and uh, the psychiatrist is thinking, well, that's just an act put on by this, this murderer. Um, and there's a, there's a strange uh, irony to it all, because the, the possessing demon um, 
he is making a very strong case for the fact that there is a demonic presence possessing this person and moving him to do the evil things he does. If the psychiatrist is convinced that the demon is real, then he has to kind of rule that the person is not insane, but he's possessed. Possession is not really a grounds for anything legal. You <laughs> get right down to it. So, if the psychiatrist says, okay, I've become convinced that there's a demonic presence here, so this man is not insane, that clears the way for him to be put to death for the crimes he committed, even though the implication is that's the demon who's doing these evil things through this poor guy he possesses, right? So, it's kind of strange how this interplay goes. But uh, what, is, what is an interesting part of the whole movie is that you have this dialogue, much of it is the dialogue between the, the demon, actually, and the possessed man, and the atheist uh, psychiatrist. <clears throat> and uh, I think it's rather masterful myself. Uh, <clears throat> I think it portrays very well the mentality of the demon. And it's very revealing. Again, you know, I'm trying not to say too much to kind of give it away. But let's just say there's a reason why conservatives find this movie to be uh, very much to their liking because it says what they believe. And oddly enough, it's the demon actually almost confessing this. That what the conservatives are saying uh, about sin and evil in the world, the demon himself is almost is boasting of these things that he is behind them. And um, how he gets into the mind of this psychiatrist is, uh, is an interesting, uh, it's, it's interesting, interesting to watch and to follow the back and forth between the two of them. Um, uh, in any case, um, the, the psychiatrist eventually does, is there to witness the the execution of the man, he's signed off, that he's saying, yes, you know, he's, 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 let's say, re morally responsible, he's legally responsible for the crimes he committed. And so they do execute him in a rather graphic scene. And then, um, I don't know if I should say this or not, <laughs> but the psychiatrist pays a price for that. He pays a very high price for that. Curiously enough, at the very end of the show, there's a voice that is probably rather familiar to uh, a lot of the conservatives and even traditional Catholics. Glenn Beck has a, 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 a not more than a cameo role. He's actually interviewing the psychiatrist a year after the events took place. And the psychiatrist actually is saying what happened He's talking about a book that was written by the possessed man while he was in the lockup, which the demon wanted to be published and wanted to be published through the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist says that now he understands enough that he actually wrote like a commentary on the book to explain what's really happening. Uh, what, what the demon is really saying here.
and now it's clear he's taking it very seriously. Um, but there's, you know, I would if I were to fault this movie in a couple of things, I would say at the very end, in particular, there are two things that I just found to be, well, I don't know, maybe the word hokey is a little bit uh, not not adequate. But I mean, we're talking about a case where someone was possessed and then all of a sudden he wasn't. So like he was possessed for a little while and then the demon just left. And uh, I'm sorry, I don't think it works that way. And um, but then he reencounters the demon at the end in somebody else, and the demon is actually tracking the, this psychiatrist and his and his movements. Um, for whatever reason, we don't know. But it makes it sound as though the demon is getting made with this. Um, that actually drew some criticism uh, from uh, Christians who thought it was giving the devil too much uh, credit or power, whatever. Um, there is a, a moment early in the movie where the psychiatrist has this demon speaking to him. And he says, look, I'm, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm not a theologian. We have to call in the, the chaplain. So he calls in the chaplain. It's a Novus Ordo priest who comes in. And the Novus Ordo priest comes into the room where this inter interview is taking place. And uh, he's just kind of sashays into the room. Um, it's like, you know, the claim that this man is possessed by the demon, his claim, the man's claim that he's possessed, Evidently, it means nothing whatsoever to this Novus Ordo priest. He just kind of sashays on in, uh, starts a little dialogue with the with the possessed man, and um, basically, uh, but the, the the demon says, "So you you really don't believe in demons?" And the priest said, "Well, our understanding of these things has evolved beyond that now. Now we understand <laughs> things differently." So in other words, no, we don't believe in these things. So the demon became very friendly with him, put his hand out to shake his hand, said, you know, like, hey, you know, uh, Goomba, come, come patriot, you know, put her there. Uh, and the, the, But the priest was kind of spooked by that and backed away and hurriedly left the room. So it was, it was an interesting, interesting little vignette from the movie. And now, uh, would I recommend that people see it? Well, um, it depends. It really depends on your tolerance level for... Uh, it's kind of spooky, you know? Somebody who uh, might have a little too much um, fear, awe of the devil could come away shaken by it. Um, somebody who doesn't would come away thinking, well, that's typical of the devil he's such a loser, you know, this is the best he can do, you know, uh, just smoke and mirrors. Uh, but somebody who has a little too much, too much fear of the devil's power could really be shaken by it. Um, but um, somebody who is, has a conservative point of view and says, look, what's happening in the world is demonic. We know this is a demonic influence. Uh, again, I don't think that person has anything to gain by seeing this movie because he already knows that. Um, he might see the movie and say, I know people who need to see the movie because they, they know what's happening in the world is bad. 
but they don't know why. And so maybe this will help them understand. Um, but there are those who are, are totally convinced by faith in demonic activity, and um, they see it, they recognize it, they don't need this movie. <clears throat> there are those who are totally against demonic activity, um, or they're to all in with it, they're, they're all in favor of it, or they don't believe in it because they, they have no faith whatsoever. And I don't think this movie is going to really move them either. But there are those who have some faith, a weak faith, who might actually um, come away with an understanding, a, a, a deepened understanding of what's going on. Uh, and Tom, I know I've been going on about this, but let me just, uh, if you don't mind, I wanted to read, read some of the reviews of the people who saw it. Kind of like the people who are, some of the people who are listening. You might find it interesting what people who saw the movie said about it. But uh, it says, Nefarious came out in 2023, directed by Chuck Kunzelman and Carrie Solomon. And the actors were Sean Patrick Flannery, who did, I think did a spectacular job. And even Jordan Belfi, I think he was the uh, psychiatrist, I think he did a really good job. And other, other actors, uh, which probably people know of, I did not recognize any of these names. Now, in uh, the audience rating for, what is it, IMDB, the IMDB website, which is evidently a movie review website, uh, the audience rating summary has a rating of 4.7 out of 5. Now, 4.7, that's pretty good. The audience generally loves this movie. <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes? I'm, I'm, I now understand why they call themselves Rotten Tomatoes, because it's Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> really. You know, you read the re reviewers who write for Rotten Tomatoes, and you say, yeah, Rotten Tomatoes. That's a good name for them. Uh, they're Tomato meter of reviews of uh, their 15 reviews, 33% of the reviewers thought it was okay. It's okay. The rest just panned this movie, absolutely rejected it. Said, This is ridiculous. Don't waste your time. This is stupid, this movie. And, uh, but Rotten Tomatoes says the audience score was 96%. 90% of the people with over a thousand verified ratings, thought this was a very good movie. And I thought, well, that's really telling. The reviewers are dead set against it. And the audience think it's, it's a really good movie. I mean, some of the reviewers, this gives, you what, this gives you what we're up against here. When we have a movie with a message they don't like, okay? And they're supposed to be open-minded people, right? Forget that. Um... So Bill Goody Kuntz says, writing for the, what is Arizona Republic, as a top critic, says, subtlety is not the film's strong point, neither is casting. Bam, you know, <laughs> just dismisses the whole thing, right? Um, uh, here's a Carla Hay who writes for Culture Mix. Nefarious has been inaccurately described as a horror movie. It's a poorly made psychological drama about a death row inmate with no real scares and too much overacting. As this dull movie drones on, it becomes preachy propaganda for right-wing beliefs. And there you have it. She doesn't like the message. And that's what you get from these people over and over again. I don't like the message. I'm offended by this message. 
That's why I hate this movie. That's why I'm against this movie. I don't like your message. Cody Leach, for the Cody Leach on, uh, review on YouTube, says, Nefarious advertises itself as a possession thriller, but pulls a bait and switch to deliver a Christian and conservative propaganda piece. Flannery does his best to elevate what is otherwise a 90-minute sermon on abortion, euthanasia, and the death penalty. Again, it's all about the message. I don't like your message. you got a rotten movie here because I don't like it. I don't like your message. Um, here's another one here. Uh, if you like your demons on the preachy side, then you may enjoy this movie. The rest of us will find it tedious, heavy-handed, and indoctrinating. <laughs> There's Josh Grolier from Spectrum Culture. Spectrum Culture. I don't know you Spectrum, like the, the rainbow? Maybe that has something to do with it here. Another one from Dennis Schwartz. The film's heavy-handed and bogus message, the message, tells us that Hollywood is immoral because it acts to corrupt its viewers' minds. Well, if that doesn't tell you how bad this movie is, I don't know what will, right? Um, now, there, there are some other viewers who, you know, reviews that were not so, you know, blatantly uh, biased. Uh, Jackie Cooper says, A battle of wits between a psychiatrist and possible demon makes for a tense film. That's what he says. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Federico Furzan from Movie Bloggerman says, Aside from a few questionable decisions, Nefarious is interesting enough to give it a watch. Just leave prejudice behind and enjoy the possession take they're going for. Enjoy, enjoy the possession take they're going for. Just leave your pre prejudices at the door. That's all. Uh, Roger Moore from Movie Nation says, The only thing not covered in this Christo-fascist manifesto <laughs> of a movie is, quote, guns, <clears throat> right? So, um, uh, Richard Propes of the IndependentCritic.com, he's an independent critic note, while there are moments of intensity and nefarious, there isn't a moment in the film that feels like cinematic horror unless you're talking about one of those evangelical haunted houses where demons pop out of the walls to warn of the evils of the world, okay? So he's evidently been through a few of those evangelical haunted houses and has not been, not been scared by them, so. Uh, and finally, Mike McGranican of the aisle seat. Nefarious builds to a howler of a climax that delivers exactly what you'd anticipate from the makers of God's Not Dead just in an even more preposterous way. The big scene would be perfect for an airplane-style spoof of evangelical-themed films. So again, I mean, those who are panning this movie are panning it just because, well, I mean, they're just, they're just making fun of Christianity, yeah. right? And that's not to be wondered at, right? In fact, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the viewers of the film actually pointed that out, that they've... The film is too good to be appreciated by Hollywood. And the best thing we can hope for is that Hollywood will condemn this film <clears throat> and for all the right reasons. And that'll be the real reason we know this is just really a good film. <clears throat> but we have one reviewer. They give their names here in, in give, writing the review, which I think takes a little courage. 
but one reviewer, and uh, by the way, 322 people found her review helpful, says, if Academy Awards still, by, uh, and I should be careful, this is a viewer of the movie. This is not a reviewer of the movie, okay? So this is a private individual who went to see the movie, and this is what he said about it. If Academy Awards still represent the best of the best, uh, SPF better get one. Um, I'm not sure. I guess I guess that's Sean, what Sean Patrick. Yeah, okay, that that's it. Okay, Sean uh, Sean Patrick Flannery. The script was so well written, and I stayed on the edge of my seat throughout, not wanting to miss a single syllable uttered by the characters during their back and forth. Even the filming, capturing the same scene in such a way as to not grow stale, was outstanding. Just from an artistic standpoint, the movie was very well done. There are so many layers to this movie, both for believers and non-believers, and it will likely affect each individual in a unique way, as any good movie with a profound message should. My congratulations to all involved with the making of this film. Unlike the films the theater previewed prior to the showing, forcing us to endure sitting through glimpses of the usual trashy fare being offered up. What a rare breath of fresh air to be able to appreciate the craft and creativity of a quality movie. And another reviewer writes, a well-rounded exemplary cast of actors on a very good collaborative effort to make the film believable. Kudos to both Sean Patrick Flannery and Jordan Belfi on their outstanding performances. The two are what I can only describe as the consummate actors, good chemistry. Uh, and he goes on and he talks about the various uh, aspects of the film and why it was so, so good. Here's another, if I could, I would give this movie 10 stars. I saw this movie today, noting the works and conferences by Father Chad Ripperger. So there we have a familiar name, right? And others. This movie was one of the most accurate and theologically sound movies I have ever seen. Usually these movies are all about glorification of evil, and they often err in matters regarding spiritual welfare and just spirituality in general. This film was quite the opposite. For instance, uh, well, he goes on and he explains things from Father Remorth and so on. But what he had to say, again, was very favorable. Another reviewer, my family has been waiting so long to see this movie, and I'm so grateful for Steve Deese and his team's vision. This movie does a great job representing a depraved, ungrateful world that is unfortunately forgetting that there is good and evil. For such a faith-based plot, it is amazing to me that God is not mentioned once, and actually the name... Uh, God is not mentioned throughout the movie. Interesting, right? Nor any savior-style preaching. Uh, in fact, the uh, the demon always refers sneeringly to the carpenter. Is all he says, the carpenter. Which makes the script different from many other films. Amazing acting isn't even the word. If this were not a faith-based movie, the lead could be up for an Academy Award. I read the book, A Nefarious Plot, a few years ago and couldn't think of how this movie could be a prequel and was amazed at how the writers adapted it. Great movie, great acting. So, uh, again, there are those who say that this was, this was helpful. And if you don't mind, uh, you know, just read a couple more. Well, here's one. 
as a young Catholic male who is a strong believer in demonic entities taking possession of people, this was the greatest movie I've ever seen. He says, keep in mind, I've seen over 250 movies in my life. Um, spending entirely too much time before the screen here. Uh, this is undoubtedly number one. The acting was some of the most perfect I've ever witnessed, as well as some of the greatest producing ever. This movie was an all-around must-watch for everyone, especially young Catholics and those who have fallen away under the age of 35. He's capitalized those words. I will be seeing this movie again before it leaves the box office. I recommend seeing this movie as a family, as it is very moving and powerful, and may be scary to watch alone. Yeah, maybe it's scary to watch for the kids, too, anyway. I'd recommend, before you take a child to see it, you better go take a look at it. I, I would not recommend children seeing this movie. Um, so, you know, again, we, we have all of these accolades. What I find interesting, too, Tom, and I'll wrap up what I'm saying about this movie, with uh, just uh, a few of the viewers who spoke against the movie. Now here's one um, <clears throat> that was not against the, the, the movie itself, but they're not impressed uh, by the, the message, obviously. But she even calls it, uh, refers to those who call it a Christian propaganda stunt. So but here's what she says, and it's very brief. A lot of people are doing a lot of complaining that this was a Christian propaganda stunt. As a Gothic Christian, who is a longtime horror fan, I applaud everything about this film. It was a breath of fresh air to get to see a new, chilling, original, psychological, she actually calls it psychological, so it must be a typo, contained thriller. No matter what your faith is, it's a good movie. In the same way that many people enjoy the book of Eli, still. Watch and take it for what it is. Well done. So as a Gothic Christian, she speaks in favor of the movie. Uh, but there are a couple of uh, writers who write con condemnations in the movie. And I think their condemnations are interesting from the point of view of the possessing demon. Uh, you can, you know... <laughs> Read into these as you will. One of them, uh, just posted six days ago, says, First and foremost, I am an atheist. I am a nihilist. It's a woman. Well, I think it's a woman, because the next thing she says is, I'm a feminist. Could be a man these days. I am also a person that respects and values the cornucopia of opposing views and beliefs. I try my best to live my life by the poignant words of Leonardo da Vinci, quote, all our knowledge has its origins in our perceptions, end quote. Hence why I took the time to watch this movie, quote unquote, if you can call it such, as it is more akin to Goebbels' Nazi propaganda. I believe in a space for art to express its creator's views. However, my distaste is when such so-called art is more heavy-handed than the priests that molest young children. So, again, where this mind is coming from. Christian filmmaking, Christian, C-H-R-I-S-T-E-N, filmmaking, 
deserves to have its voice, but when it doesn't offer a concession on opposing views, tact, it is merely the cries of a toddler that screams, but I don't want to share, which is why this movie is juvenile. Lastly, to all of those who claim that this was a brilliant written script, I offer this piece of knowledge. When the warden is smoking with James, that's the psychiatrist, and explains the process of Edward's death, that's the condemned man, explains the process of Edward's death penalty, he goes to the barber because human hair is a resistor. So they're going to shave his head so the uh, electric chair can, can do its job, they say. And this writer says, absolutely factually incorrect. Hair is an insulator, albeit a poor one, as opposed to a resistor that char changes electrical properties when exposed to current. Read a book, screenplay, writers, but obviously not the one that the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the nefarious plot, one this movie was based on. So the, the, this is what they zero in on, the idea that the, the warden calls hair a resistor, and that's why they have to give the man a haircut. And the objection is, it's an insulator. Uh, so a warden is supposed to know this? And, I mean, this is, talk about juvenile, you know? I mean, this is not a deep thinker here, ladies and gentlemen. But I, I just found it to be kind of revealing about the kind of mentality it goes into uh, pouncing on this. It almost sounds like the kind of thing that you expect out of uh, Sean Patrick Flannery when he's taking the part of the demon saying, aha, I caught you making that mistake. No, hair is not a, a resistor. It's, a, it's a, an insulator, you ignorant fool, you know? <laughs> And so, I mean, it's, it's really sad. Uh, a cousin of mine is a, a correctional officer at a max penitentiary, and I can unequivocally tell you that no prison has a room with a stenciled label barber space on the door. Okay. Well, that's, that's got to tell you what a rotten movie this is. I need to keep on adding to this post. Oh, no, please. The Glenn Beck scene is absolutely ridiculous. A, why is GB dressed like a community college drama professor? That's Glenn Beck. So, so she criticizes Glenn Beck's outfit as the interviewer, saying he's dressed like a, a community college drama professor when he's interviewing, I mean, hello? And B, the character of James, a certified psychiatrist, is in no way able to determine mental illness and demonic possession. Uh, well, well, who do they have actually determined whether somebody is psychologically sane, uh, you know, or not to go to a psychiatric unit? Or, in other words, you know, if this is the caliber, this is one of the, the few uh, uh, attacking viewers that I saw, and this is what this is what I get, and this is the other one basically. And again, it, it, again it, even, it shows you the caliber of those who are finding fault with the movie. And I think it actually speaks in favor of, of the movie even more perhaps than those glowing in praise of it. As a spirit-filled believer, 
I found this film to be not only incredibly disappointing, but extremely offensive. The fact that it has received so many endorsements by those who say they are Christians is a testament in itself to the wicked way in which the enemy schemes to deceive human beings, most especially those who have claimed their identity as children of God. This movie gave Satan a platform from which to speak into the lives of believers and non-believers alike. How dare, capital D-A-R-E, we allow Satan so much screen time to boast over his demonic agenda and trash our Father in heaven without, at the very least, pointing viewers to the hope we have in the one who already gave us the victory over the demonic forces of hell when he died for our freedom. This movie takes the viewer's eyes off of God and places them on to Satan. It drastically exaggerates the power of the enemy and in no way spoke to the redemption and deliverance available to us through our Savior Jesus Christ. I am shocked, all caps, that there wasn't one, all caps, discerning born-again believer in the movie who understood the authority given to them by Jesus Christ to intervene on behalf of the suffering-possessed man. Uh, and then the person goes on and uh, basically says, why, why were people of faith not represented here? And, um, and, I mean, I can't entirely disagree with this person. I would just have to say that that uh, is another movie. Uh, that the purpose of this movie was to really uncover the, uh, the, the activity of Satan and uh, his work in the world. Uh, but I would say that the demon in speaking, uh, I, I think this person missed something very important, that the demon, even in speaking of the carpenter and what he accomplished, and why the demons were condemned and why they're doing what they're doing, I mean, the demon did actually speak very disparagingly of God's love and uh, of God coming and redeeming and offsetting the work of the demons and, uh, and even mentions the crucifixion, you know. Um, so I, I, think, I think that this person is, uh, and it's, it's a girl, it's a lady, is uh, kind of uh, off base. In, in criticizing the movie for this. I think the movie would be a lead-in lead to what she's saying now. Um, uh, perhaps, perhaps the movie was made, and you'd have to talk to the director here, perhaps the movie was made to um, reach not those who already believe because they don't need this to believe. Uh, perhaps it was made for those who don't or don't know what to believe. There are those who believe firmly, those who do not believe firmly, uh, who are anti-belief firmly, but there is a middle ground of people there who have a very weak faith, some faith, they don't know what to believe, and I think the movie was probably made for them to uh, make them realize, uh, to understand what is really happening here. And uh, I think that would pave the way then for talking to them about faith and how important that faith really is in our Lord Jesus Christ and that he is the Savior. And, um, and he's vanquished all of these evil powers. Mm -hmm. So, um, in any case, uh, Tom, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I guess I didn't mean to go on that long, and you probably didn't expect me to. 
uh, I would just urge great discretion in, in seeing the movie. I wouldn't see it out of curiosity. Okay. But I know that there was a question that one of our uh, viewers asked about employment, right? And I, I know times are wasting here, but it might be something that he needs an answer to. So should we go go to that? Do it, fine. Okay, and I will try to be uncharacteristically brief. Okay, sounds good. Uh, yes, let's see. So this viewer says, "Father, I recently found out that the company I work for actively supports LGBTQ plus Pride festivals and marches, and publicly opposed anti-LGBTQ legislation." I have objected to this to management and HR, but it's clear that won't change anything. I contacted a Christian group at the company about it, but they think that protesting or a petition would cause conflict between employees and cause more harm than good. I've been advised that quitting won't do any good, as I will run into the same situation at other companies in my line of work. So, Father, is it morally acceptable to work for such a company knowing that the company profits made from your work is used to promote immorality? What course of action should a Catholic take in this situation? I don't think it's immoral to work for a company like that. I, I'd say if you have a choice, but you're saying, uh, the person who's writing this is saying, they're told they have no choice. At least they don't know of a choice. Well, they should probably look for a choice. Uh, but in the meantime, until they find one, um, are they sinning by working for this company? And I don't believe they are sinning by working for this company. Uh, they have the option of being paid by this company uh, to, to uh, do a certain task, whatever it is. I don't know what computer field or whatever. And uh, using the pay or whatever benefits they get to promote a good work, uh, to support what they knew is the work um, of saving souls and honoring our Lord, right? Uh, he can also... Uh, use his presence in the company to hopefully galvanize people. Um, he says he approached the Christian group there and they said, well, it do more harm than good to speak out. But he can still uh, use his presence there in a way to set a good example. Um, so he can take whatever treasure he gets from working there and he can devote some of that treasure at least over and above what he needs to actually do good things, right, uh, for our Lord, for souls, and honor our Lord um, by the works of mercy, the corporal and spiritual works of mercy that he can do. Um, he can also perform those spiritual and corporal works of mercy on the job, though, and set a good example for those who are there. Uh, if one were to say, well, I can't work for this company because they're doing some bad things, and they are, one might say, well, can I go and shop here and buy food because this company is woke and I'm, I'm buying their food and they're profiting from my, my business here, right? And uh, pretty soon you run out of, you know, you either grow your own food or you don't have food, right? Is that the only option that it is, is there without committing sin? No. Um, let's say the contribution that an individual makes in, in, a, in a company like that is probably quite small and uh, that whatever contribution that he himself makes that would, if he were not there, be certainly made by somebody else who would fill his place. 
that that whatever contribution he makes to that could be offset by supporting good causes, uh, by using that employment actually to uh, to support things that are that are very good uh, for faith, for hope, for charity, for souls, for our Lord. So uh, I don't think he needs to uh, to make a display of of quitting the job over that. I do recommend though that he he looked for employment uh, where his work will actually serve the purpose of his faith. And uh, then he will not have that, that conflict in his conscience. Uh, if he can work, uh, find a, a company that will employ him to do something godly or at least not immoral, or if he can start a company of his own even, look for an alternative where he can devote his talents to serving God and uh, promoting faith and open charity in the souls of those around him. Look for a way to do that. And um, uh, I, I would suggest that that's the case with everyone in his position. Uh, you know, the, 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 recently there was a gentleman, well, he, he was actually a leader in the Club of Rome. As you know, you know, you have the Bilderbergers and you have the Bohemian uh, Grove people and you have these different uh, sets of people who are movers and shakers in the world and are leftists and they're all conspiring to move the world in the direction of uh, leftism, communism, and a God, you know, atheism. Um, but there is a, a they're, they're in kind of a hierarchy and as you climb through the hierarchy, the group gets smaller and smaller until you get it distilled into like the handful of really the, the, the powerful movers and shakers. And one of those upper echelon groups is called the group of uh, the uh, uh, Club of Rome. And this man was allegedly a leader in that group of Rome, that Club of Rome. And he's interviewed. Uh, his interview actually appears online now. It's very interesting. He's saying that the people behind all, all of this, and by the way, in saying this, he's not supporting them now. Okay, he has broken with that. That's the message. And he's saying that these are people who actually think that they have this total control because of the presidencies and the chancellorships and so on, the people they have in high places governing the world, uh, the high places of government and control over the world, they actually think that they have this control. That's why he says Donald Trump was such a shock to them, because it demonstrated that they really didn't have the control they thought they did. That's what he says. He says uh, they had plans to move ahead with Hillary Clinton that they could not move ahead with Trump. But now they're, they're moving ahead, but they're determined that he not get back in. No. But in any case, what, what, what he said that was really important above all important though, he says they want to cause a global food crisis. And that had to be kind of derailed by the Trump administration. But now they're back on track to have this global food crisis. And so one thing that came away from this interview to me was we need to have our own economy. Uh, you know, the sacred scripture tells us that the, uh, you know, the mark of the beast will be required for everyone to buy and sell 
And so in a case like that, you think, okay, there's a warning involved here that to whatever extent it's possible, we need to uh, use our intelligence and our goodwill and our trust in God to try to build some kind of an economy among ourselves to take care of each other. This is simply the corporal work subversi that we need to employ here um, to, to try to work that out, try to, try to devise something, some system that would provide the goods necessary for life uh, among those who are anathematized by the powers of hell. Um, but he comes to the end of that interview and he says, what unites all of these people, what they all have in common is pedophilia. That's what he says. He says it out loud. He says, they all have in common their pedophilia. And he then goes on to say, you know, there are 8 million children who disappear every year. I'm not sure where he gets that statistic, but he says it. There are 8 million people who disappear every year. He said that's the entire population of Austria, the country of Austria, just to give you a perspective. 8 million children disappear every year. And he leaves it hanging there as if to say, what do you think happens to them? Or where do you think they're going? Jeffrey Epstein and his friends who remain in power. As this man says, what they all have in common is their pedophilia. And we see why they're promoting all of these perversions everywhere. Because they want the entire world to be uh, recast in their own image and their own perverted likeness. And uh, they want the entire world to be uh, converted into a playground to turn it into their playground and that a child will be safe. So in any case, uh, Tom, I can understand why our writer is so, you know, considers this to be so abhorrent to work for such a company that promotes such things. Uh, but I just don't want him to have the crisis of conscience thinking that I'm committing a moral sin by working here. Uh, no, you're not. But I do think, especially for your peace of conscience, you need to uh, try to find a better place to apply your talents um, for the good. In the meantime, as long as you are working there, use whatever opportunity you have to do whatever good you can. I think there's uh, certainly a moral obligation to do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. so. All right, Father, thanks for everything tonight. Thanks for your time. Certainly God done. bless you. Well, God bless you too. Sorry to be so prolix. That's okay, Father. Thank you. But hoping that we haven't worn out the ears of our listeners. <laughs> but uh, God bless all of those who uh, listen. Please pray, pray for our country. Please pray for the children. Do what you can to protect them. Absolutely. Thank you, Father. Thank you to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.